Our glorious God has brought us by his merciful providence to John chapter 17, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the most sublime passages in all the Bible. Out of its 1189 chapters, John 17 stands very high indeed. Do you believe this great chapter of the Bible and the incredible significance it has on many levels? Amen. Do you believe that Jesus Christ of Nazareth came forth from God and then returned to God? Yes. Do you believe he prayed for his apostles and you as part of the believing elect with the words recorded here? Amen. Do you believe God Almighty, the Lord Jehovah, creator of heaven and earth, heard his prayer? Amen. Do you believe that over the next seven weeks, from John 17, starting with his death, were transcendent events in the universe? Yes. Do you believe God the Father gave Jesus glory for his work, and then because of his work, Do you believe he glorified God his Father by accomplishments on and after the cross for us? I believe these things and all implications more than the most incredible revelation of God's majesty and Jesus Christ's majesty and the Mount of Transfiguration because that's what Peter told me to believe, right. that his written words were more sure than hearing God's voice from heaven. Amen. I believe every single letter jot and tittle, word, phrase, and sentence of John chapter 17. Do you grasp that the vast majority of the world rejects this man, Christ Jesus, and his prayer as being important? Do you know that it takes the same power that raised him from the dead for you to truly believe it? Does the personal context the saving content and the holy example of his prayer move you to service? It should. John chapter 17. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. And amen. amen. If we can make it that far this morning, we'll have accomplished a great deal. What an opening. What a prayer. What a context. What content. What passion. What personal affection for apostles and us. This is the last night of our Lord's life on earth. After Judas had deserted him to gather the evil Jews together, who were then, at this moment, making their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane themselves. This chapter falls between the Last Supper that we read about in John chapter 13 and Gethsemane, which is John chapter 18. I have repeatedly emphasized the timeline that is found in John chapters 12 through 18 for your benefit. Carefully note that timing. We went over it last Lord's Day. Chapter 12 is six days before Passover. Chapter 13 is the night of Passover. Chapter 14 through 16 are the Lord's lessons to his apostles. At the end of chapter 14, they leave the room where they observed the Passover and made their way toward Bethany. Chapters 15 and 16 are on the road to Bethany. In the open air, in the stillness of the night, under a full moon of Passover. A glorious context indeed. Those previous four chapters that we've read and studied, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, were such personal lessons for their benefit, promises of God's great support for them by the Holy Spirit. Great personal comfort that Jesus would not leave them alone or comfortless, that it was expedient for him that he went away because he had things to do for them and he would give them a comforter that would be better for them than his personal presence, 
that he was going to heaven to prepare mansions there in his father's house for them. The, the chapters leading up to this are precious. They're not found in Matthew or Mark or Luke, but they're here in the Gospel of John. The words of John chapters 13 through 16 are mostly for the apostles as Jesus prepared them for his departure. And such precious and comforting words are hardly to be found in the rest of the Word of God compacted together like they are in those chapters. We considered some of the highlights last Lord's Day. Before us is a prayer. The whole chapter is the prayer. And this is truly the Lord's prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. This is the Lord praying. The Lord never prayed the Lord's prayer. Do you understand that? Jesus Christ never prayed what everyone else calls the Lord's prayer because it involves asking God to forgive the prayer as he forgives the sins and trespasses of others. Jesus had no prayer like that to make. It was an outline of prayer for his disciples. It ought to properly be called the disciples' prayer. Most churches that even know what the Lord's prayer is call it the Our Father, and they use it for rote purposes in their liturgy. It's a liturgical form for them to say together because it's short enough for people that don't care about the Bible to memorize it. It's short enough that with enough use, you can learn its words like you do the pledge to the American flag. The Roman Catholic Church and her daughters use it as liturgical ritual or a rosary filler. Contrary to the scriptures, the apostles didn't pray that way. The apostles prayed in Jesus' name. There's no Jesus' name in the Our Father prayer of Matthew chapter 6. Acts chapter 4 shows us how the apostles prayed. They didn't pray the Our Father. That was just an outline of prayer. And it wasn't even up to date by the time we got to John chapter 17. Because as Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended up into heaven and sat down at God's right hand, we are supposed to pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, which wasn't contained in our Lord's instruction on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. The parties to John chapter 17 and the parties to the prayer are the elect for sure in verse 2, those the Father had given him, and the apostles are identified in verses 6 and 12, and all the elect that would be believers on those apostles' words, are identified in verse 20. So there's Jesus Christ praying to his Father for the apostles that runs to verse 19, and then from 20 through 24, Jesus prays for us. He prays for us. Because we have believed the record that they gave of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would not know about the Lord Jesus without the record that they gave us. The prayer has 26 verses, but at most five are about himself. And they are gloriously committed to the glory of God. And they are the first five verses. Sixteen verses are committed to the apostles and five to all believers. The prayer presents the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, standing as mediator and redeemer of his people between God and them. And he prays on their behalf to God for them and their benefit, that God will treat them in such and such a way for his glory. And he, if God would glorify him, would die to save those ones that God the Father had given him. Jesus was a man of prayer. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 6 and verse 12 that he was in prayer all night. But we don't know what he prayed. But we find out how he prayed and what he prayed and the content of his praying Right here in John 17, there's no prayer recorded like it in the gospel accounts. To pray all night? Well, this prayer is pretty focused, and it stays in, tr- in course for the benefit of the apostles and the benefit of us. And he's praying for us at this hour, making intercession for us. That's what the Bible says. Intercessions are another word for prayer. Supplications are another word for prayer. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is doing that, and we get a glimpse 
of his compassion and care and commitment to the apostles and to us right here to know that he is praying with the same kind of passion and commitment for us. What a tremendous chapter in the Bible. Amen. The dramatic and personal aspects of the special evening and prayer of the Lord Jesus ought not to be overlooked. The location, like I've said countless times almost, is on the road from Jerusalem to Bethany, about two miles, where the Mount of Olives was located, where he was off to resort with his apostles and pray. And he went there to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Matthew and Mark and Luke record more of the details of his prayer in Gethsemane than we have in John 18. But they don't know about this prayer, nor chapter 16 of John, nor 15, nor 14 that we have. We have just covered some very special ground given to us by this gospel writer. It was a full moon. It was quiet at night. It was in the open air after an emotional meal. After chapters of tremendous lessons, he had gone to great lengths in many varied explanations and promises of his love toward them and provision for them. What a night it was. It can easily be envisioned. And we don't know this. And I'll be the first to admit it. But I want you to think about it. Did he just keep trotting along as he prayed? Or did he stop and say, let us pray? Did they take hands and form a circle? Jesus was used to using his hands on his apostles. Jesus was used to using his hands on little children that were brought to him. He was used to reaching forth to pull Peter out of the sinking sea of Galilee. He was used to reaching forth and touching maids and, and telling them to arise from the dead. He didn't just speak the word. He was touchy because he used his hands. I don't see him just trotting on. He stopped and looked up to heaven. If you're looking up to heaven, how fast are you walking? You stop walking. And so we have a moment that is precious, and it should move us, and it should affect us. Whether they held hands or not doesn't matter to me. I just want to make it as personally as I personal as I possibly can to you as you read it. I want to be as dramatic as the Bible is dramatic. The Bible is dramatic. Amen. I don't want to preach this in some dry and boring way. I want to preach it for you to receive it and be moved by it. Right. It was a tremendous night in all the things that he had already said to them, and now he's going to pray to the Father about them and they're going to hear. He says, these that you've given me means that they are standing there, not those. Those are very important adjectives and pronouns, demonstrative adjectives. These or this is a demonstrative adjective, meaning it's right there in your presence. Those or that is something removed from you in time or location. But he's going to pray for these that you've given me. And what a moment for the Son of God. God had thundered from heaven, owning him as his son before this event. And now the Son has lifted up his eyes to heaven, the performer of all the miracles, the Lord of glory, the virgin-born Jesus of Nazareth, lifts his eyes up to heaven and prays for the 11 men standing around him. But it's no more personal than him praying for us at this very hour. Right. On the night of the greatest human drama in world history, the Lord Jesus Christ prayed for you. The whole universe exists for that night. And resulting events from that night. Without that night, the resulting events that you're looking forward to wouldn't happen. It was that night that God created the heavens and the earth for that night. He let dry land appear for that night so that they could take a walk and not a row. They needed their feet, not a boat. When the apostles should have been encouraging and praying for the Lord Jesus, he was praying for them. You will not notice 
In John 17, any appeal for sympathy, though he starts out, his very opening remarks to his Father in heaven are about what he's going to have to endure that night. The hour is come. Father, the hour is come. But he moves from that hour to the glory of God. The salvation of the elect and the apostles, that they would be kept united, protected, and sanctified by the word of truth and sent into the world so the Gentiles like us could believe and that we would all be one in fellowship with the Father, with the Son, and the apostles together. He didn't add, there's no sympathy. He's no request for sympathy. No complaining about what he's about to endure. He left that for himself with the Father, a stone's throw away from Peter, James, and John, and farther away from the other eight, as it's recorded in the other gospel accounts. Our Lord, facing death, speaks of love and unity with passion to match Paul's many repetitions of the same doctrine. His prayer here for the eleven and for you is very different from his painful praying in Gethsemane. Here is clearly the most tender moment in the history of the world before its greatest calamity and its greatest victory. We have been in the holy place sanctuary of John chapters 13 through 16. We have been with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting at a table with him. We've seen who was closest. We've seen them nudging each other and asking questions to ask the Lord Jesus. We've heard marvelous things. We've got up and started a walk and and heard more marvelous things. And so for four chapters, let's call it the sanctuary. The the tabernacle and the temple had two compartments. There was a holy place, and that's where we've been with the Lord Jesus. Then there's the holy of holies. And that's John 17. Because it's the holy of holies, because all of a sudden, it's Jesus and God. And he's praying to his father about the eleven. The previous four chapters are Jesus to the eleven. No high priest needed. We're in the sanctuary. John 17. You may measure your Christianity, whether you have eternal life or not, by whether you love and rejoice at this chapter and if it changes your life. If you don't love and rejoice at this chapter and it doesn't change your life and you're pretty much a person committed to your little family and having fun, then you're likely not saved. Because this is the Lord Jesus Christ praying about salvation. This is the Lord Jesus Christ praying to his Father. This is the tenderest moment of the gospel accounts. And if you don't love it, And if it doesn't affect you to where you show that love toward others and the kind of service that Jesus showed toward his apostles toward others, on what basis do you think you're saved? God doesn't care if you believe any of our doctrines. Do you love his son? I started off with some very important questions. Do you love his son? Do you love the prayer of that son to the father? Do you love the fact that the father heard? Oh, he heard. Because everything the son prayed for happened. God did glorify his son. His son's going to be glorified in just minutes. When he meets the angry mob. And the son is going to glorify the father. Because this is the great mystery of godliness that commenced this night with this event of Jesus being arrested tried, tortured, and then crucified. The conclusions and consequences of this prayer for your faith and knowledge should be precious. Many have lived and died without knowing this glorious person and this tender spiritual chapter. It's terrible to think about it. The majority of the world has died without knowing about John 17. And many of those that call themselves Christians do not, un- do not know about John 17, do not appreciate John 17. They're still back there in Matthew chapter 6, quoting the Our Father like parrots or monkeys. With little beads. Using it just as a filler 
between every ten Hail Marys. Instead of this prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. Why has God by sovereign grace and merciful providence brought you to this day and this chapter? Why are you here today? Why am I here today? And why has God led us to this chapter and we care about it? And we love it and we want to learn it. We want to see into it. We want to understand everything that Jesus said in his prayer. This is the longest prayer recorded in the New Testament on the most solemn of all occasions. You should more easily and fully believe his intercession for you. Remember how I've tried to show you that Jesus died for us, yea, rather, yea, rather, there's something in addition to him dying for us. Yea, rather, there's something better than him dying for us. There's him taking the fruits of that death and interceding for us at the right hand of God. Romans 5, Romans 8, and Hebrews 7 all make that comparison. How can we better learn to pray than by carefully learning the prayer of God's Son? His apostles once came to Jesus and said, Lord, teach us to pray like John teaches his disciples to pray. And Jesus, at that time, taught them to be impetuous. Not impetuous, but pressing and urgent in prayer. That's Luke chapter 11. Here, we see the content of prayer and the focus of prayer and the direction to the Father. He calls the Father in this prayer six times his Father. And it's for spiritual things. Jesus was about to die, but he doesn't ask here that the Lord would put a band-aid on him. He asks in chapter 18, as it's recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if it be possible for that cup to pass from him, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. His whole life was headed toward this moment of dying for us. But here, it's all for the spiritual glory of God and the profit of his people. Always. The glory of God and the profit of his people. He practiced joy, though he was the Jesus of joy. He practiced the two great commandments, the love of God and the love of others, even though he was God in the flesh. There's no reason to rush through the prayer. There's great value in every verse, including the first verse. We need to get a couple difficulties out of the way if you want to understand John 17. And it is only by God's arrangement. Because of what was in chapter 15 that we have recently considered rightly dividing the word of truth. But I need to rightly divide the word of truth with you right now on two points of this prayer of the Lord Jesus so that we don't have to ruin the prayer by referring to this rightly dividing later. I just want to get it out of the way. There are two issues here. A difficulty with this prayer to be peremptorily removed is our Lord's reference to his two natures. What did the man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, mean by verses 5, 8, or 24 about his preexistence? Let me read these verses to you. Verse 5. And now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. 8. For I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. The Son came out from the Father. Verse 24, Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now Jesus of Nazareth, with a birth certificate up there in the town of Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth by the Sea of Galilee, refers to glory that he had before he came to earth. 
refers to the Father loving him before the foundation of the world. So we've got to get this issue out of the way. You may say to me, it's no issue to me. That's because either one of two things. You're not thinking or you don't understand the controversy. And I don't want to get into the controversy except to hope that you remember enough to know that there is one. We reject the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. We reject the fact that Jesus in his divine nature was a son in eternity being bounced on daddy's knee. We reject any application of Proverbs chapter 8 to anything like that. We reject the words of Proverbs chapter 30 and the prophet Agur as having anything to do with Jesus of Nazareth. We understand that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. He was God. Jesus was, in His divine nature, unbegotten, undivided, unproceeding God. He was the Lord Jehovah, I am that I am, in the fullest sense of the words. But that word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. There is divine glory in the Godhead, and there is mediatorial glory in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And we need to see them both. And so we understand... Let me say a few more things about this, this first difficulty. We have to rightly divide the word of truth. If we held the origin, the origin from origin, and they're spelled differently, the, RC, the Roman Catholic Church, the Reformed heresy of eternal sonship, we could preach eternal nonsense out of this chapter. But we don't believe that, so we're not going to preach nonsense. The Holy Spirit through John already prepared us well. The verses I just read from John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, who recorded John 17, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gave us John 1 that is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke about telling us of the divine nature of Jesus Christ. And then he told us in that 14th verse, and I say it again, the Word was made flesh. That eternal God took on a human nature, including a human body. We know Jesus by two natures was on earth and in heaven simultaneously. Because in John 3 and 13, when speaking with Nicodemus, he said, John 3 and verse 13, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. How could Jesus be speaking to Nicodemus down from heaven on earth and be in heaven at the same time? John 3.13. By his dual natures. He has a divine nature that fills heaven and earth. He has a divine nature with unlimited glory. And that glory wasn't ever taken away from the divine nature. But Jesus the man, our mediator, our redeemer, came into this world in poverty, joined together with that divine nature. As Philippians chapter 2 teaches us, and other places teach us, there are other dilemmas about the two natures of Jesus that I don't want to deal with any further. You should already know them. And they may be mentioned later today when we study further the Bible rule of, of rightly dividing the word of truth. I hope that you can remember that past events in a person's life may be referenced by present names or titles. Adam tells me that his wife, Fawn, went to kindergarten in a certain city. I dare say she wasn't his wife in kindergarten. We say things about our beloved brother Paul that were only true of him when he was unconverted Saul. We say things about Abraham that happened to him or that he did 
when he was Abram and he came out of Ur of the Chaldeans. You're supposed to remember these things because they've been taught to you repeatedly. When were you chosen in Christ Jesus? Before the foundation of the world. Really? Where were you before the foundation of the world? In the purpose and covenant of God. But we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. There was no Christ and there was no you. So how are we chosen in him before the foundation of the world? By the covenant and decrees of God. In the purpose and plan of God. In the decrees of salvation we were chosen in him. Our names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so the sense of John 17, 5, if you're looking at it, the sense of John 17, 5 means that the Son is asking the Father for as much divine glory of the Word that can be given to the human nature of the Son as possible. Did the Father do this? When the Apostle John that wrote this and sat next to the Lord Jesus and rested on his bosom, saw the Lord Jesus glorified in Revelation chapter 1, was there a difference? Did he have some divine glory? Yes, he did indeed. And so the prayer was answered. You say, well, I just wish the terminology was a little different. I love the terminology just the way it is so that eternal sonship folks can find verses like this and think they have rope. And they do, to hang themselves. He wanted as much divine glory that God could give him in his mediatorial role as the Son of Man. And when you read the book of Revelation, the light of Revelation and the glory of Revelation is God on his throne and the, and the, it's an L word, and the Lamb is the light thereof. The Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not the divine nature of Jesus Christ. That's the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb is the glory of that place. John 17 and verse 8 means that the Word made flesh was sent on a mission by God the Father, just like the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus, sent the apostles on a mission from God the Father. John 17, 24 means that God loved Jesus as mediator by covenant, just like he loved us by covenant, just like he wrote our names in the book of life by covenant. Just like we sing, "'Twas with an everlasting love, God did his own elect embrace. When they on his bosom were there before the foundation of the world, by covenant and purpose, and plan executed in time. Much more could be said, but it's not worth being said because we want the prayer as it is without being distracted too much. Our second difficulty, a second difficulty with this prayer to be peremptorily removed is our Lord's repetition of unity with God. What did Jesus mean in verse 11? And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. Were the apostles going to join the Trinity? So I'm dealing with it. I want it out of the way. I I, I don't want you wondering what the unity is about. Is it unity of nature? No. Is it unity of affection, plan, purpose, joy, and pleasure? Definitely. Verses 21 through 23. That they all may be one. As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. It is a oneship, it is unity, and a matter of being one collectively in fellowship, and intimacy, and love, and purpose, and plan, and pleasure, and truth. All those aspects are the oneship, the unity, 
of John chapter 17. Let's turn to the first epistle of this same gospel writer, 1 John chapter 1, and let me read you a few verses there that hopefully will clarify this. You know, regarding difficulty number one, and that's the two natures of Jesus Christ, I went back to John chapter 1, because John had already set us straight. God made use of different writers, and each writer has his purpose in place by God, and so John had prepared us for John 17. First John chapter 1, he's going to prepare us for unity. What kind of unity? It's already been mentioned in John 13, 34, and 35. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, by the love ye have one to another. If you obey me, my Father will love you. If you obey me, I will love you. If you will obey me, my Father will come and dwell with you. If you will obey me and love me, my Father will come and dwell in you and manifest himself to you. It's that kind of a relationship. It's relational. It's fellowship. It's not nature. You say, who in the world would believe that it's nature? Have you ever heard of a group out west in the state of Utah focused in the city of Salt Lake that believes we're all going to be gods and have our own planets? You say, well, we're not Mormons. I know, that's why I'm only taking a couple minutes on it. I knew, I knew that about you. Sometimes I ask you, when you miss a Sunday or two, when you get back, I ask, if you, did you go to the Mormons? It's just my little way of checking on you. 1 John chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, sounds like John 1, 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God made flesh. Because you need a flesh body to hear his voice, a flesh body to see with your eyes, a flesh body to look upon, and a flesh body to handle. They touched each other. That bother you? They're standing in a circle on the road to Bethany. I'm getting myself more and more convinced of it. Verse 2, for the life was manifested and we have seen it, that manifested life. The word was made flesh and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. That's the unity and, and the one that we want. God the Father, God the Son, the apostles, and the believers from the apostles' doctrine. All together, in fellowship, in love, in joy, in purpose, in plan, in pleasure, intimate, personal, relationship, undivided, unseparated, loving each other. If you do anything to ever sow discord in this church, you are an enemy of the priest of John 17. And he hates you. Proverbs 6, 19 says that there are seven things God hates. And the last listed are those that sow discord among brethren. You are an enemy of John 17. So we have the second difficulty cleared up for us as referring to our unity in fellowship, love, and purpose which includes the truth and the gospel. And the Apostle Paul refers to this numerous times about one mind, one heart, one mouth, serving and glorifying God. Verse 1, John 17 and verse 1. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. These words spake Jesus. The Holy Ghost identifies with some black print that what has gone before, those precious chapters of being in the holy sanctuary with Jesus Christ, were given and spoken by Jesus Christ. These words refer to what went before. 
We have other examples in this gospel and other gospels of how this phrase is used. These words spake Jesus, the ones he just concluded. And lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, and we have new words of a different variety being expressed toward God. But it is important that the Holy Spirit reminds us as soon as we open John 17 that this immediately follows not those words, but these words that he had just spoken because it's, it's a short trip from Jerusalem to Bethany. And those lessons that he gave them were so personal, so filled with so many promises, so much comfort. I will not leave you comfortless men. If I leave you, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if, I'm, if I go away and I'm not really preparing a place for you, I have told you that. I only have your best interests at mind. Remember, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. Where do you want to go? I agree. Let's re-preach the four chapters all over again. I'll do better this time around. And so we start out with these words, spake Jesus. The lessons that are contained in John chapters 13 through 16, those four chapters are here identified by the Holy Spirit. For anything that I'm saying, there's a whole lot more for you to consider elsewhere in writing because I want to keep moving into this prayer. What I mean is, I want to continue moving into verse 1. John 17 and verse 1. These words spake Jesus. And lifted up his eyes to heaven. He is called our Heavenly Father. Do you pray? Our Heavenly Father. Jesus taught his apostles to pray in that prayer that you may think that I was disrespecting. I was just putting it in its proper place compared to John 17, I get tired of hearing so much about Matthew 6 instead of John 17. Let's, let's grow up. That wasn't a prayer in the name of Jesus. That is just an outline of prayer. Jesus didn't pray that way. The apostles didn't pray that way. It's just an outline that when you pray, you ought to include those components in your content and additional components that we are taught later. He lifted up his eyes to heaven. Our Father which art in heaven. Because our God is in the heavens. Amen. Their gods are on earth. Their gods are on this plane. P-L-A-N-E. On this plane. They carry them around. They bow down to them. They kiss their toes. They offer their children to them. But they're down here. Our Father is in the heavens. Amen. And the Bible tells us that he fills heaven and earth. God is so connected to heaven that Jesus forbade swearing by heaven in Matthew chapter 5 because that's where the throne of God is. Prayer does not require closing eyes, though we usually do so for focus and reverence. Jesus lifted up his eyes. He lifted up his eyes and looked to the hills, but he looked higher than the hills. He looked to the heavens where God was. Amen. God had thundered from heaven to him. God had spoken from heaven. And a dove had descended from heaven upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven. Jesus had lifted up his eyes to the Father just a little while before this in John chapter 11 when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You do not need to close your eyes to pray. Jesus, in this case, lifted his gaze up toward heaven. However, we have this example. And so there is certainly nothing wrong with you lifting up your eyes to heaven because the Bible tells us that we're supposed to lift up holy hands when praying. Lifting up holy hands, God, here are my hands. They're holy. I have no unconfessed sins without wrath and doubting. 1 Timothy 2.8 We are such creatures of habit that this is uncomfortable for us. We despise charismatic religion so much that we don't want to lift our hands even if it would be to fulfill scripture. But 1 Timothy 2.8 And I'm not reading a gospel account. I'm reading uh, the Apostle Paul to Timothy 
to teach you. So when Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven, and Paul said, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, there is a heavenward view and effort for God to see us and for us to look to him as if we were a servant looking to the hand of our master, as the Bible describes it. Just wanted to throw that out for you again. So you've never prayed with your hands lifted up? Why? I mean, why not? Just wanted to throw that in there. Yet, Jesus told us the publican went down to his house justified who would not lift up his eyes to heaven because he felt too unworthy of heaven. So there's both in the Bible. You're welcome for covering you. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. Brethren, we sat at a table with him. He took his garments off and girded himself with a towel and came around and washed our feet. He then explained what he had done. He told us that that night he was going to be betrayed by one in the room. He gave us all the love and affection of chapters 14 and 15 and 16. Now he stopped on the road to Bethany. Before we get to the garden of the Mount of Olives, where he was used to, where he was used to go with his apostles, and he lifts up his eyes to heaven and prays. Wow! Beautiful. Incredible. Get into it by looking at these words. He stopped. And he's going to pray, and he is going to get to his content immediately. He does not waste any time. There is no extra elaboration here. Father, the hour has come. There is no waste. That is pure efficiency. Father, the hour is come. The context of my prayer and the need of my prayer is very obvious. The hour that you sent me into this world for has arrived. And said, Jesus prayed in the presence and hearing of the eleven, quite different to Gethsemane, where he went off by himself. You know, he took all eleven into the garden. Then he dropped off eight that were not his closest friends and took his three closest friends further into the garden and then he went a stone's throw away from them. Now ordinarily, when you're kneeling down and you're praying and you're a stone's throw away from someone, they're not going to hear much of what you're saying, especially in a garden where sound is going to be caught up and they didn't hear anyway because they were asleep three times in a row. But here we have the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. Try to imagine the comfort, the love, the fellowship, the intimacy, and the spiritual doctrine heard in these 26 verses by the apostles from the mouth of the Lord Jesus. If the hearts of two disciples of Jesus on the road to Emmaus burned as he opened the scriptures to him, what were happening to the hearts of the apostles right here in John 17? Let parents of children follow the example of praying for children in front of them. I've mentioned it a number of times. It's scriptural because Jesus prayed in the presence of his apostles. I am sorry for any time in the past I have ever led you to believe that John 17 was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He hadn't yet passed over the brook Cedron. He's still on the road. And he's with his apostles. He's not praying by himself. He's going to use that demonstrative pronoun, these. Standing there with him. Prayer is not tongues babbling. I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding. Jesus prayed with his understanding because the content is very carefully designed and very logical for the spiritual prophet of those men and of us. His first word was Father. God as our Father is the relationship for the basis of prayer. 
because of salvation and God saving us, and his purpose in salvation is to adopt himself a family for his great glory in the universe, he puts his spirit in us, Romans chapter 8, Galatians chapter 4, that causes us to cry, Abba, Father. Abba, Father is an untranslated word for father and a translated word for father. Abba, Father. It is not some term of disrespect. It is just a compound use that is common in the Bible, like, my God, my God. We aren't supposed to look at those two uses of my God and think one is different than another, because they're not different. Right. It's, for the, it's for the sake of emphasis. Right. And so is Abba Father. Untranslated, translated. We've been over that before, and it's not important. Jesus opens up with Father because of his relationship with his Father. He was the Son of God. We open up with Father because we are the sons of God. We have been adopted through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we pray to our Heavenly Father. And he used that in teaching us how to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ did. He explained that as earthly fathers, if our children asked us for something, we would do it for them. But he is our Heavenly Father, trumps us so easily. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Heavenly Father know to give good gifts to them that ask Him, if we're His children? And the Lord Jesus Christ gives us that example here. The hour has come. The hour. The short period of time for the greatest events in the universe had come. The hour. Not 60 minutes, but a short period of time that was imminent. It had, it had arrived. The hour has come. Look at those words. Father, the hour is come. His whole life, he knew about this hour. He knew that this hour was going to result in his death. He knew that before he would get to die, he would be tortured and he would be tried in an un, in a, in a illegal, foolish, wicked court where false witnesses were allowed to conflict and contradict each other, and yet he was not freed. He knew all this was coming. And he knew through his life that his hour was not yet. And I'm not going to turn you to all the references that are in your Bibles where it says that they couldn't lay hands on him because it was not yet his hour. And he would tell his apostles, it's not yet my hour. I still have time to go into Jerusalem and we'll be fine. I have time to go into Judea, Judea and we'll be fine because it's not yet my hour and the power of darkness. As he told them in Luke 22, when it's my hour, the power of darkness is going to take over men. They're going to come and arrest me. It will not be a fair trial, and they'll crucify me, though the governor and judge in charge of the trial knows I am innocent. It's the power of darkness. Luke chapter 22. The hour is come. The time of our Lord Jesus Christ's ultimate work he had long known about it, but now it had arrived. The universe exists for the display of God's glory through Jesus' death in 30 AD. Right. It exists for this hour. Jesus has taught us about this hour. Look back a few chapters to John chapter 12. John chapter 12 is how long before John 17? It's in the first verse. Six days. Because it says so in John 12, 1. Look at verse 23. Jesus answered them, These are his apostles that had brought some Greeks to him that said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Jesus answered them saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And it goes on down through there. And he prays to his Father in verse 28, Father, glorify thy name. The Father thundered from heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. This is the benefits of the hour. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from all men, will draw all men unto me. And he would be lifted up within 24 hours. He would be lifted up in tw less than 12 hours. He'd be lifted up and he would draw all men, meaning us Gentiles. 
He would draw far outside the small confines of the nation of Israel, and there would be many Greeks converted by his victorious death over sin. The prince of the world was judged. The hour has come for war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the devil and his angels. War! And my victory, Father, the hour has come. The hour that arrived in world history and the life of Jesus is incomparable to other events. Think about it. There were geological phenomena. Earthquake. Astronomical phenomena. Sun darkened. Religious changes. The Jews' temple had its veil rent from top to bottom. A Roman centurion confessed Christ being the Son of God. War commenced in heaven that I've mentioned. The spoils of victory were purchased by Jesus on the cross, forgiving it on the day of Pentecost. The visible and earthly results of the hour included Gentile conversions worldwide. The hour has come. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy son. Father, I am now, I have now arrived for the purpose that you gave me a body and sent me into this world. Honor me. Help me. Support me. Bless me. Favor me. That I will execute the job perfectly for your glory. Glorify me that I might glorify thee. And we all ought to be living the same way. Every blessing that he gives us should be for the glory of God. Every prayer request should not be for your fun and fancy. It should be for the glory of God. Turn everything to the glory of God. Jesus turned his death to the glory of God. We want to do that. The reciprocal glory of God the Father in Jesus is key. It is a beautiful relationship and we want the same. God glorifying his son, the son glorifying the father, back and forth. Son to the father, if you'll glorify me more, I'll glorify you more. And when we pray, we should pray the same way. Lord, if you'll bless me in this area, I'll give you greater glory. Jesus did it that way. You say, it sounds like you're bartering with God. If you're bartering for God's glory, it's okay. If you're bartering for your fun in this world, it's not okay. It's for God's glory. Jesus already had glory bestowed on him as the only begotten Son of God. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth was the Lord Jesus. His birth had been announced by the angelic host in sublime terms. God had glorified him at 12 by astonishing doctors of the law in Jerusalem. His father had gloriously spoken from heaven at his baptism. His father had gloriously clothed him with majesty in the Mount of Transfiguration. His father had gloriously thundered from heaven just a week earlier, six days earlier in John 12 that we just looked at. There were angels descending and ascending from the Father to Jesus, as Jesus explained to Nathanael. All Jesus said and did was glorious and by his Father. His words were from the Father. His works were from the Father. His life was from the Father. He was conceived in a virgin's womb. God had given him glory as of the only begotten Son of God. But Jesus had much more in mind. He needed God to honor him in arrest and death. Jesus prayed God's glorious favor on all that he did so that he might more perfectly glorify God. The ultimate purpose and challenge of his life was to die for the sins of his elect. He wanted to perfectly fulfill God's plan for his life and death by God's assistance of him that he could do it perfectly for the glory of God. Did God answer that prayer? John 17, 1, glorify thy son. Did God answer that prayer? The hour is come, the hour of my death, the hour of me being lifted up. Did God glorify his son? He gave Jesus Christ strength in the garden of Gethsemane not to threaten his captors 
and tormentors and not to ridicule his apostles, which you would have done quickly. But to fulfill the scriptures. He did everything to fulfill the scriptures. And Jesus explained that he was there to fulfill scriptures. And the the reason that some things happened the way they did was to fulfill scripture. In the Garden of Gethsemane, his words, I am he, threw his captors to the ground. Was the father glorifying the son? Yes, he was. Pilate's wife had a dream that she told Pilate about and asked him to avoid the trial. Was God glorifying his son? Pilate himself was moved against the Jews to identify Jesus as king of the Jews in three languages at the top of the cross. God moved one cursing thief to confess Jesus as Lord and beg for heavenly mercy on the cross. After blocking out the sun, God sent an earthquake and rent the temple veil in two from top to bottom. God glorified his son. God moved the centurion with a hundred soldiers under him, responsible for the crucifixion, to confess the son of God. Truly, this man was the son of God. God moved Judas to declare Jesus innocent by all the betrayal money and his own life. That Jesus was innocent. God arranged for numerous prophecies to be fulfilled by his death and his burial. He was dead before the soldiers came around to break legs and so forth and so on for the greater glory of God because Jesus' death fulfilled the Bible. God raised him from the dead and carried him into heaven and crowned him there. Yes, God glorified the Son. And did the Son glorify the Father? The reciprocal glory of these two, and I say that with all reverence, is wonderful. May it be true of our church. God, every blessing you give us, we will turn for your glory. Because that is our chief goal in life, is the glory of God. It was Jesus' meat to do the will of God and to finish God's work. He diligently used every hour of light and every hour of time that he was awake to work the works of God. We've already learned that in the chapters leading up to John 17, that while it was day, it's time to work. Jesus had a great work ethic for his father. Salvation is the great key here. Verse 1 is not alone, because verse 2 starts off with these words, as thou hast given him power over all flesh. So the real issues of glory, glory to the Son was about his death. Glory to the Father was through his death for the salvation of those that had been given to the Son by the Father in election, which is you and me, if we're God's elect. How much does John 17 describe you? That's how you can know if you're you're God's elect. Because we cannot separate verse 1 from 2 and 3. Father, the hour has come for me to gain the salvation of all those you've given me. Father, the hour has come. Glorify me. Honor me and bless me with everything that I need to do this job perfectly. And I will do it and glorify thee by a huge family that I'll present to you one day. Behold, I and the children which thou hast given me. Giving eternal life for men to know God certainly has God's glory as the objective, doesn't it? Why did God send Jesus Christ to die for certain men? For the glory of God. It is not for you to have fun. It is not for you to have pleasure. It's for you to know the only true and living God, and the only way to know him is by salvation. And it tells us that in verses 2 and 3. We'll cover them next Lord's Day as we come to the Lord's table on the first Lord's Day of September. Not only did Jesus pray for you, believing reader, believing hearer, he died for you. The whole universe exists for the glory of God through salvation and damnation. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor, my right hand, and another unto dishonor. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known 
endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory, even us whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And that gets us squeezed in. In Romans chapter 9, this is exactly what occurred. There was no possibility the prayer of Jesus was not answered. God glorified his son, and the son certainly glorified the father. Let me say it again. This is the great mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed unto the world, received up into glory. Those six events, the hour is come. Father, glorify me. I'll glorify you. Jesus, by voluntary death on the cross, fulfilled the law, fulfilled all the truth of the Old Testament and all the promises of God. He satisfied the righteous and holy demands of God as judge for the salvation of sinners. He took our sins upon himself on the tree. By his resurrection and commission of the apostles, the world heard about God's glory. The whole world had been dark in idolatry, but many repented and turned to God. Remember, their craft was being destroyed because these fishermen, these uneducated fishermen, went out and turned the world upside down with the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of God. All of it for the glory of God. Never forget the reciprocal glory of God and his Son by their deeds for each other. The Father loveth the Son. Did we learn that in John chapter 5? The Father loves the Son. This is my well-beloved Son. Did the Son love the Father? Indeed. We are the sons of God, and he has loved us. Behold, what manner of love, what manner of love, The Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. He didn't just justify us. He didn't just reconcile us. He adopted us. What kind of love should we have toward him? Anything we have. Anything we have. Anything we are is all yours, Father. Use us. Bless us. Glorify us to glorify thee. Have you ever heard a prayer out of this pulpit? Heavenly Father, glorify thyself through us and to us. We want him to glorify himself through us to others. May the, Lord, may the Lord bless us to be a church like that, that when people visit us, they know that they've seen the people of God. My brothers and sisters, what have you done to glorify God beyond the ordinary and habitual Christian ritual of attendance in this church? which doesn't mean anything. Do your thoughts, words, and deeds reflect a life primarily lived for your own or family pleasure? Do your thoughts, words, and deeds reflect a life primarily for yourself? Do you understand and know that without this man and his hour that you're doomed to hell? How do you show your deep devotion and passionate commitment to this man that is now your king? Those questions we need to answer. John 17 is glorious. He prayed for us. Then he went out and died for us. And yea, rather, or much more, being reconciled, he's now praying for us in heaven as our surety and the sacrifice for us. And he will not lose one of us. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.